0: Good morning. My name is Adam. If uh, we haven't met yet, it's great to have you with us this morning. Uh, on Friday night, I was at uh, the New Life Orphanage Ball. It's their annual fundraiser where they raise most of the, the money to support the orphanage. And it was just wonderful to see the work that God is doing, to hear about the young lives that have been changed and are being changed um, because of the orphanage. And uh, Israel, who runs the orphanage along with his mum, Bella, uh, will be sharing with us tonight at our 6pm service. So if you'd like to hear from Israel and hear a little bit more about the New Life Orphanage and give again to the Christmas Appeal, then you can come along tonight and we would love to have you. Before we dive into God's word this morning, I just wanted to make a, a quick announcement Many of you would know Fred and Anne Westra. They've been members of BPCC for a long time. Many of you would know that this year we've been praying for Fred and Anne. Fred has been battling and dealing with bladder cancer. And more recently, Anne has been dealing with an aggressive brain tumour. And on Friday night, Anne passed away. In her home, she was surrounded by loved ones. Now, we grieve her loss, we grieve with Fred and her, her children and her grandchildren but we don't grieve without hope those words that Jackie read for us just a moment ago from First Peter that we've been saved to an inheritance that is imperishable that will not fade, that cannot be taken away from us because Jesus died and rose again and one day Jesus will return and we too will rise again so we grieve, we're sad, but we have hope. So I'd like to pray for us, and then we'll open up God's word together. Heavenly Father, today we are saddened. We are grief-stricken because of the death of our sister and your daughter, Ann Westra. Lord, we groan and we grieve at the suddenness of her loss. Lord, we're reminded that we are all truly a vapour, that life is fleeting. But Lord, we're also reminded that we can rest our saddened hearts on your shoulder with the peace and the comfort that comes from knowing, Jesus, you are the resurrection and the life. And there is a day coming when our greatest enemy, the last enemy, will be a long-gone enemy. So, Lord, we just simply lay Fred and the family before you this morning. You are the God of all comfort. And we pray that you would give comfort to Fred, the boys, their spouses and the grandchildren. Lord, would they know your peace and your nearness? And would you use us to bless, support and help them in any way that we can in the coming days, weeks and months? Lord, we praise you, we bless you as we rest our heavy hearts in your loving hands this morning. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. At 11am on the 11th of November in 1918, which is exactly 100 years to this exact day, there was an event of world-changing significance. The guns fell silent on the Western Front after four years of continuous warfare. World War I, which had claimed 16 million lives, including 62,000 Australians, was over. And in the days and weeks and, and, and years following the war, the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month began to attain special significance. The day eventually became known as Remembrance Day. It's a day for countries all over the world, including Australia, to pause and to remember those who fought and lost their lives. And one of the significant parts of Remembrance Day is the reading of the ode, which includes those well-known words, they shall not grow old, as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. Today is the 100th anniversary of Remembrance Day. And those words really get at the heart of Remembrance Day. The point of it, as the name suggests, is to remember. We have special services. We have a moment of silence every year because we don't want to forget. We want to honour those who lost their lives. We want to have a better future by learning from the past. We need to remember. And this is true, not just in our national and, and military history, but this is also true in our spiritual lives. The Bible is clear about the importance of remembering. In the book of Psalms, for instance, there are repeated warnings about the danger of forgetting God. Psalm 78, for example. It says, we will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. They would not be like their ancestors, a stubborn and rebellious generation. Whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to Him. I'm talking about the generation that wandered through the wilderness. Verse 11, what, what did they do? They forgot what He had done, the wonders He had shown them. We need to remember what God has done for us. It is spiritually dangerous for us to forget. In fact, One author and Christian counsellor goes by the name of David Powlison, well, that's his name. He says the only way we ever sin is by suppressing God, by forgetting, by tuning out his voice, switching channels and listening to other voices. When you actually remember, you actually change. When we remember, we change. This means in the the problems of our lives, when we remember the promises of God, we change. In the trials of our life, when we remember the truth of God, we change. In all areas of our lives, when we remember the love of God, we change. When we remember, we change. And we're going to be looking at a, a part of the Story of 1 Samuel this morning that will reveal to us the importance of remembering. If you haven't been around for the last few weeks, we are on a journey through the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Now what we've seen so far is that the people of God, the nation of Israel, they were going through a time of leadership transition. The corrupt priesthood of Eli and his sons had been removed the faithful leadership of Samuel who had replaced them was now, at this point in the story, coming to an end. And so what we saw last week in chapter 8 was that the people asked God for a king to rule over them. But not just any king. They wanted a king like all the other nations had. They wanted to keep up with the Joneses. They wanted what their neighbours had. They wanted a strong military king to lead them into battle, And at the end of chapter 8, we saw that God said, well, give it to them. Give them what they want. And so this week, as we open up chapter 9, we might expect to be introduced to Israel's first king. And that's exactly what we see in chapters 9 to 12. We see the rise to the throne of Israel's very first king. Now, because we're covering so much content today, four chapters... I want to do something a little bit different. I want to simply ask two questions. Two simple questions as we look at this section of the story. Number one, what is the story about? And then number two, what does it teach us? What's it about? What can we learn from it? So let's begin by looking at what the story is all about. And what we see as we open up chapter nine is we see the identity of the first king of Israel. This is what we read. There was a Benjamin. That's one of the 12 tribes of Israel. A man of standing, whose name was Kish. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than anyone else. Now, if there was an ancient version of the reality TV series, The Bachelor, step aside Honey Badger, Saul would be the leading man. He was tall, dark and handsome. And not only that, he was rich. His dad, we're told, was a man of standing. In other words, Saul was everything that Israel were asking for and looking for in a king. But the story of Saul, much like the story of Samuel, begins in a common and unusual way. It begins with lost donkeys. Look at what we read in verse 3. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, take one of the servants with you and go and look for the donkeys. And so that's what they do. Saul and his servant go from town to town looking for these donkeys, but they cannot find them. And so Saul wants to give up and go home, but then his servant remembers something. They're in the town of Zeus, and his servant says to Saul, Look, in this town there is a man of God. He is highly respected, and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he will tell us what way to take. Now, it's interesting that Saul did not think to look for this man of God. It was the servant that thought of him. This tells us a little something about Saul's spiritual state. And as the story continues, they're given directions to find this man of God and they just happen to come across him as he is going up the mountain to offer a sacrifice. Now, as you may have guessed, this man of God was none other than Samuel. And Samuel, when he met Saul, he knew exactly who he was. The day before, God had revealed to Samuel and said to him, About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. And so Samuel and Saul meet, and Samuel invites him to stay with him for the night, to eat with him. And that evening, Saul is treated like royalty he is seated at the head of the table with 30 other guests he is given the prime largest best cut of meat and he has a a peaceful sleep under the stars and the next morning when he wakes it's time for he and his servant to, to go on their way but Samuel says to him Saul can I have a word he literally says to him I have a word for you from God So Saul set out looking for lost donkeys and he ends up finding the word of God. And chapter 10 verse 1 tells us what happens between Samuel and Saul. Look at what we read. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people, Israel? Now, let's just admit, this is a lot to take in in a short amount of time for Saul. He not only has some oil poured on his head, he's not only kissed by Samuel, but he then is told that he will be the king over Israel. Now, this little scene, it seems a little bit odd to our modern ears. But what is actually happening is what's known as an anointing. When someone or something is anointed, they are set aside for a divinely chosen task. And from this moment on, Saul was set apart as the chosen leader of God's people. But as I'm sure you can imagine, Saul still needed some convincing. If someone came to you, poured oil on your head, gave you a kiss and then said, you're going to be the king of, or queen of Great Britain, I'm sure you'd need a little bit more than just that. And so Samuel tells Saul that there's actually going to be three signs, three things that will happen on his journey home that will convince him that this is God's will. And what we read in verse 9 of chapter 10 is that as Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart and all these signs were fulfilled that day. Now these signs that Samuel said were going to happen, they confirmed for Saul that this was indeed God's will. God knows it, Samuel knows it, Saul now knows it. All that's left is for the people of Israel to be told. And so Samuel gathers all the leaders of Israel at Mizpah. He rebukes them again for rejecting God and asking for a king. But then through the casting of lots, which is like the rolling of dice or the throwing of sticks, Saul is again publicly selected and publicly revealed as the king. And so the people rejoice and then they go looking for their new king to crown him and to coronate him. But then something happens that's not a good sign for Saul or for Israel. Look at what we read in verse 21. Saul, son of Kish, was selected, but when they searched for him, they could not find him. Before his public reign even begins, Saul, the tallest man in Israel, is lost. Cannot be found. See, he was so embarrassed, so overwhelmed, that he hid himself among everybody's luggage. And God eventually tells the Israelites his whereabouts, and they go and get him, but this absurd scene and this fearful king does nothing to deter their enthusiasm. Look at what we read, verses 23 to 24. They ran and brought him out. And as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, Long live the king. Now the name Saul actually means... Asked for, asked for. In other words, it's like God is saying to them, this is the king that you have asked for. And already the signs are not good. Saul is externally impressive, but he's spiritually insensitive. Saul may be tall and rich, but he's also fearful and selfish. This is an inauspicious start for King Saul. Saul. But he soon gets another chance to prove himself. You see, a day a little bit later, he's working in the field with his oxen and he hears the news that an Israelite town by the name of Jabesh Gilead, which you can see at the top there, has been besieged by King Nahash, king of the Ammonites. Ammon is the, the region down there. Now, in verse 6, we're told, when Saul heard their words, the the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he burned with anger. Now, in the Old Testament, when the Spirit of God came upon people, it was to equip them and to empower them for a specific task to serve and to help God's people. And this is what we see happening here. The Spirit of God stirs up Saul and moves him to action. And Saul rallies the people of Israel together, leads them into battle, and defeats the Ammonites. The people of Israel are jubilant, they're ecstatic, so they gather together to once again renew Saul's kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord and Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. The people are jubilant, they're ecstatic, but Samuel knows that this victory is going to tempt the Israelites to put their trust in their king and not their God. And so in chapter 12, Samuel delivers a speech to the Israelites and he rebukes them again for their request for a king. He reminds them of God's faithfulness to them in the past and then calls them to obey God in the future. This is what he says to them. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, And if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. Samuel is saying the most important thing for the people and for your king is to obey God. He is the one with ultimate power, and he is the one who gives true Victory. Now, to drive home this point to the people, God sends thunderstorm and rain upon them in an amazing display of power. And all the people stand in awe of Samuel and in awe of the Lord, and they say, Samuel, please pray for us. And Samuel says to them with the final verses of chapter 12, he says, do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, But serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you because they are useless. Maybe he's thinking about Dagon from the temple earlier in chapter 2. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you and I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. Quite a story, isn't it? And that's what the story is about. But we have to ask the next question. And that is, what does this story teach us? Why is it in the Bible? What does it reveal to us about God? Well, I think the first and most obvious insight that we can gain from this story is that God is king above all kings. God is king above all kings. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. I love that imagery. He turns it wherever he will. This story is an illustration of that passage. See, God may have given the Israelites a king like all the nations to rule over them, but there is no doubt about who is calling the shots in this story. I mean, did you notice the hand of God at work? For example, Saul thought that it was lost donkeys that led him to Samuel, but it was the hand of God that led him there. God revealed to Samuel the day before that he would just happen to run into this man named Saul. God arranged for the lots, the dice, to fall Saul's way. God put his spirit upon Saul for the task of being king and to defeat the Ammonites. God is the king above all other kings. And God was calling the shots in this story and God is still calling the shots today. This is the biblical truth known as providence. Providence. God sustains this world that he has created and he's directing it towards his good end. Or as Tony Evans says, providence is the hand of God in the glove of history. And this is true for the world. God has a a plan for this world to bring everything under the reign of Jesus, to bring an end to all evil, all sin, all suffering, to bring us into his presence and into his peace. God has a plan for this world. But this is also true in our lives. God's saving plan for this world is fulfilled in the ongoing ordinary lives of ordinary people like you and me. Proverbs 16 verse 9, the heart of man plans his way but the Lord establishes his steps. Now, to illustrate this truth, I want to share with you the story of one of our members. Earlier this year, someone, uh, one of our people reached out to me for help. They had to give a devotion in their workplace. They work in a Christian school and they wanted to share the story of how God had providentially worked in their life and led them to where they are today. I'm talking about this rather regal-looking man, Tom Connolly. Now, maybe you uh, saw Tom earlier. He was playing drums for us just a a few moments ago, which is why I like to call him Animal. (laughs) Or Ringo, depending on his haircut for the day. Now, Tom has given me permission to share part of what he wrote, and this is what he writes. He says, why am I speaking to you right now in this room? At this moment in time, is it something more than chance? So many things have happened both during my life and before it began that have led me to where I am today. For example, in 1959, a young man was driving home from work one night when an intoxicated driver smashed head on into his car. This young driver was in a coma for a week. This nurse was called in to work that night to assist at the incredibly busy local hospital. She wasn't scheduled to work and if she hadn't picked up the phone she wouldn't have come in to work at all. But she did and she was assigned to a young male driver who had been seriously injured in a car crash earlier that night. Here is a photo of the young driver and the nurse one year later. My parents. Flash forward 30 years and a Canadian policeman, along with his platoon, had run over 10 kilometres in pouring rain to raise money for the Special Olympics. It was something the police do every year. His university friends had asked him to attend a reunion party that night, but it was two hours away in Toronto, and the last thing he felt like doing, especially because the rain had turned into a torrential thunderstorm. But after a phone call from one of his university buddies, he has talked into making the trip. Two hours away, an Australian field hockey player has been asked by her teammates to attend a university reunion party hosted by their boyfriends. She almost decides not to go because of the thunderstorm, but at the last minute, she changes her mind and goes to the party. This is a photo of the policeman and the hockey player from the reunion party. They've been together ever since that night. Tom goes on, he says, "'I remember when I was in Canadian Police College.' Our driving instructor said to us, Rookie, if stuff hits the fan, and that's not the exact word he used, (laughs) your best friend for protection is your car's engine. I remember looking at the Chevrolet Impala engine thinking, how's this mess of metal going to help me? One year into my career, I was driving around in my Impala when I got a call to a domestic disturbance one afternoon. Police hate these calls. They do not typically end well. Pulling into the driveway, I got out of the car. As I approached the house, I was planning it all in my head. Don't stand in front of the door. Check out the windows before you knock. At this time, our sergeant was on everyone's case about wearing our police hats in public, something about presenting a professional image. All I knew was that if we didn't wear it, we were reprimanded. As I made my way towards the house, I realised that my police hat wasn't on my head. I quickly returned to get it from the car I didn't want to reprimand. This move would change my life. After momentarily fuming at the preposterous notion of having to wear the hat, I managed to suck it up, open the back door, and I bent down to place it on my head. At that moment, pellets from a shotgun blast whizzed over the Chevrolet and over my head. It's amazing what happens during these life-defining moments. I suddenly remembered... Rookie, the engine is your best friend. I dove towards my new bestie and it protected me like a true best friend should. I went over this incident many times in my head later on. I wondered, if I hadn't forgot my stupid hat, what could have happened? What if my driving instructor had not given me that strange piece of advice? What if we had a totally different instructor that day? Tom concludes with these well-known words from Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And the details of our lives are going to be wildly different, but it's the same God who graciously guides us for his good purposes and to his glorious destination. Because God is the king, above all other kings. That's the first insight. The second and last insight we can gain from this story is that remembering the goodness of God in the past motivates faithfulness to God in the present. See, in chapter 12, in his speech, Samuel calls upon Israel to be faithful to God. And the way he does this is he calls them to remember He calls them to remember all that God has done for them. Remember what he said in verse 24? He said, But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. And then he said, Consider what great things he has done for you. When we remember what God has done for us in the past, it motivates us to faithfulness in the present. Think about it this way. If my parents were to call me, my mum or my dad called me and asked me to do something and it was perhaps something difficult, maybe it's something that didn't even make sense to me, I would, if I could, do that thing for them. Why? Because I had 31 years worth of evidence of their love and faithfulness and devotion. And it's the same with our relationship with God. When we look at all that he's done for us in the past, he has created us and he loves us. He has sent Jesus to die for us. He has raised Jesus for us. He has poured out the Spirit into our hearts. He has assured us of a glorious future. When I look at all that, then what can be against me? And that motivates me to step into faithful obedience to God in the present. So let me just ask you, what are you doing in your life to actively remember all that God has done for you? How are you reminding yourself On the blog post last week, Ben suggested reading good books and listening to good podcasts, and, and that's a great thing to do. But it can be even more ordinary than that. It, it can be taking the ordinary moments of our every day to remember, reflect on what God has done. Maybe what it means for you is in the morning when you wake up, your first thought is a simple prayer. Lord, you are great and you have done great things for me. Help me to live in light of them today and all of my days. Maybe you just take a truth of scripture and you memorize it and you meditate on it during the day. Maybe as you take a shower in the morning, you remind yourself of the truths that were symbolized by your baptism, that you've been washed clean by the blood of Christ, that the Spirit of God has been poured into your heart. Maybe when you get dressed in the morning, You remind yourself you have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You stand before God, loved, forgiven and accepted because of Christ. Maybe when you watch the news at night, you remind yourself of the ultimate good news, the news that is better than any other news, that Jesus reigns and rules and is returning. I mean, I know this might sound a little bit trite to you, but the point is, what are you doing to remember to remind yourself of all that God has done for you so that when times of trouble and temptation come, you can remember and be faithful. Maybe when you sit down to eat a meal, you remember the meal that we're about to partake in together, the Lord's Supper. See, the purpose of Lord's Supper is that we would Remember, Now we would remember the price that Jesus paid on the cross to bring us to God. In fact, 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul writes and he says, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying that this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, God knows that we are prone to forget. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And so God has graciously given us this table. Every time we come to this table and we hold the elements in our hands, we remember the goodness of God to us and the grace of God for us. Because the bread represents the broken body of Jesus. Broken for you and for me. The cup represents his spilt blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And when we come and we take those elements, we remember. And when we remember, we are revived. Because the Lord's Supper is not just about looking to the past, about what Christ has done for us. It's also about our communion with Christ in the present. Because when we remember the faithfulness of God to us in the past, it moves us to faithfulness and obedience in the present. And so that's what we're going to do right now. Let me invite those who will be handing out the elements to come and to to get ready for me. But when you come, you take those elements, you go back to your seat, you hold them in your hand and you remember. And maybe you want to say to God in that moment, God, lately I've forgotten. Lately I've been living my life a little bit on autopilot and I've moved on in my heart and mind from all that you've done for me this morning I want to come back and I want to remember. So you take the elements. If you have placed your your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, if you have received all that God offers to us in Christ with the empty hands of faith, then you come, you receive the elements, you go back to your seat and then we will eat and drink together as we remember together what Christ has done for us. The ushers will invite you from the back to the front And then you go back to your seat and we'll eat and drink together. Amazing love That welcomes me The kindness of love, wholeheartedly, my soul undeserved.